We will employ an exciting, fast, explosive, and diverse offense combined with a physical, punishing, relentless, suffocating defense. Purdy rolls right, looking to throw. Benito gives chase, comes back left. Purdy still looking, sets up, balls loose, rolling around in Iowa State territory. Redmond picked it up. Redmond on the run. Redmond scores. Oh, mama. All right, guys, welcome to the Oklahoma Breakdown Podcast, brought to you guys by SB Nation's Crimson and Cream Machine. You guys can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podcast, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you guys can get a podcast. If you guys would give us a five-star review, smash that and subscribe, that would be awesome. And it just makes us easier to find, and we appreciate all of your support throughout the many years, especially with me and Steven doing the podcast. So I'm your host today, Kamir Morabian. I am obviously joined by my... Wonderful friend and colleague for gosh, we have been like linked together for, for like while. the last eight, seven, eight years now. <laughs> Stephen Brown, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I I today became an actual faculty member of OU, so uh, nice. I'm getting I'm getting paid by them, uh, so that's that's fun. I'm I'm teaching a class over there on Monday night, so that was a pre- that, was, that was pretty special, but also like you know being a high school teacher, you go from teaching 16 year olds to teaching like 20 year olds, 21 year olds, a little bit different, but I was a little bit more mature. I've been a TA and I get paid for it. So I actually get paid for it this time. So that's, that's always nice, but Hey guys, we have so many things to talk about. I mean, there are a variety of things to talk about that we need to recruiting in general, like who has been committed the last couple of days, the last couple of weeks, really. Uh, the Venables approach, new pipelines, expanding the playoff possibly, team buy-in, and and, and again, a bold prediction. Um, I just want to say something to get out of the way. Sorry for the long wait for the last podcast. I actually had several people reach out and be like, hey, is my feed messed up? No. Uh, there was a week and a half where my wife had COVID and I experienced a lot of symptoms, but nothing really came of it. And then we just had a, a conflict last week. So here we are, and it is August, which means, oh my gosh, football is happening this month. I don't even care if it's preseason football, but it's <laughs> happening football, uh, and I'm, we should all be very excited. So let's start with recruiting. Steven, many people are shocked at the rate in which Oklahoma is recruiting. Even a, a lot of OU folks, Oklahoma folks, what exactly is in the water in Norman, Oklahoma (laughs) right now, because something is going on in like people went from saying, this is a very Bob Stoops class, you know, 15, 16, 17 ranked class to Holy crap. This could be maybe a top five class when it's all said and done. What's going on, man. I'm not sure you can point to one single aspect of the program right now. That's just being successful in recruiting. And it seems like everything's just clicking on all cylinders. And we've talked about in the past, um, you know, how this recruiting class, you know, in June isn't going to look like it is going to look in, uh, you know, December, like a lot of guys are going to move up the, uh, the rankings, but I don't think really anyone to my knowledge predicted this sort of success in July. I mean, you look at, you know, the early, early period and you get Phil Picciotti late June, you get uh, Jaquez Petaway. Um, you're looking pretty good going into the season. And all of a sudden, you know, um, you have this late July weekend and you land a, a, a commitment from a guy from Austin, Texas and Colton Vasek. It's just, it's insane. And there's, it's a very different way of recruiting. And, and, and 
to the credit of this staff being able to close everybody. Whereas in the previous staff, you draw this thing out into November, you know, a couple mm-hmm. weeks before signing day and you're still on the edge. It seems this staff knows how to close. And I think it's just really interesting about their whole approach uh, to their, their recruiting philosophy and really creating this buy-in and every, every person that's been there, especially players that are entering their senior years, but have maybe been on campus prior to that have said, especially with the regime change and in going with when Riley was at OU to Venables being now the head guy, saying it's a completely different environment. It's like it's the, the, the interaction between parents, coaches, players, even players that even that are invited because typically when you when you get invited to a camp or you're not a camp, but you get an invite to a school unofficially or whatever, you're allowed to bring a couple of friends that definitely aren't making that team. That's typically how that goes. Just it's for fun. And parents and players have attested to that this staff is so much more interactive with everybody and like really genuine. Whereas Mm -hmm. the old regime was super kind of like cold a little bit and like maybe not authentic, I guess would be the word to say there. And so what is this month? Because I mean, Oklahoma really, they just went on a tear in July. What does this month suggest about the staff that Venables brought in? You said that, Hey, they knew how to close. That and that's one thing, especially with Venables and his in his commitment philosophy, right? Like that's right. that's really interesting. So, what in particular are they going at? Because I know Clemson folks are not they're already not happy in lose in losing Brent Venables. Right. They were extra not happy when they lost Todd Bates with Brent Venables, and so what is this entire month where the classes seemingly doubled? suggest about the staff that they brought in other than the Sooners knew how to close on those prospects. Well, I think one thing that stands out and you can go, you know, position coach by position coach or coordinator, anything you want to do there. But I think one thing that stands out and I'm not sure has been talked about enough. is just how much the support staff has played a role in this. I mean, if you look back a couple of years, um, it was kind of a chaotic mess on those, those larger recruiting weekends where guys would just get lost on their own. Um, you know, they're just by themselves and, and, uh, and Norman for, you know, three, four or five hours without really getting much engagement from the staff. I think the, the most important thing is this, well, or Brent Venables is organized is being able to be attentive to every single one who, every single recruit that arrives. I mean, there's, there's not a second that they're on campus that they're left by themselves. There's always someone escorting around, talking to them, making them feel welcome. Um, and I think that's played a large part in, in a lot of recruitments. And more importantly, I think Brent Venables has been after parents, like yes. more so than players set in some instances, like really pinpointing what is a, like what pl- kind of player does, do I want on this team? Duh. But also B, what kind of recruit, recruiting strategy tactic would be best for this individual and a lot of times um the parents are are what people go after and i felt like i always felt like riley he did recruit some parents as far as like high profile prospects of right. course he had spencer rattler of course yes the last two quarterbacks oklahoma had basically 
Um, and Venables is meeting every parent, family member, and is and you can tell and you can tell that it's genuine, and I think that matters, and I think that is seen throughout the whole staff. Now, people always feel like Dabo is cringe. Um, and I would agree that Dabo is cringe. And I think it's super interesting now that we're seeing some serious interest, like just some, some odd elements to this coaching staff. Like you have Kale Gundy just throwing just random jabs in the middle of the summer. I, I, I think he said something along the lines of that. This has been the most well-organized yard season team i've seen in 25 years like man throwing hooks just out of nowhere catching strays even i mean like you can even say that about bob suits he said last 25 years um and i think that's a testament to what venables is trying to accomplish there obviously but you also have the clemson guys over and i think it's really interesting because you are seeing a mix of nostalgia of the old Bob Stoops era, the early 2000s Bob Stoops era kind of guys mixed with that kind of cringe from Dabo. Or is that just me? Is that a vibe I'm just getting? There's a little bit there. Um, I would agree with that because there's, you know, Dabo's a very successful coach. Um, oh, yeah. You know, he's put together a very successful program, but um, you can tell that he left a mark definitely on Brent Venables. I'm not sure about, you know, some of the other coaches, but um I, I don't think Brent hesitates to say that Dabo left a positive impression and he can elaborate a little bit too much. He, the guy just loves to talk. Um, but I, I get the sense that there's something there, but um, at the same time, I think he's going back to his roots of being a very intense football coach, a very uh, personal guy, you know, back, back, I think towards the end of his, his first in Oklahoma in like 2012. Man, wasn't wasn't Dabo the assistant and was not maybe going to get hired and they gave him that job anyways? Or am I remembering that incorrectly? Um, I'm not sure on the history of that. I know Dabo's first couple of years were kind of hit and miss. And then he had that that top 25 season that that kind of kicked everything off. Hmm. I'll Brought in that term. Seed. By the way, that turnip seeds impact. You're starting to see that. Um, I think in the, the hang time video, they they kind of alluded to the new uh retrofit i guess of the the lounge area where it's got a lot more recovery stuff you know not the barber or the basketball hoops it's more about um player performance mm -hmm. and that's what you want to see that's what you that's what you saw at alabama 24 7 like mm -hmm. when espn espn used to do the college football car wash where they would go to one of the top uh, schools in the nation and they would show you practice facilities, you know, game day styles right. and what was what it was like. OE was on there prior to that 2012 season, I believe, when they went to Tallahassee and beat Florida State before mm -hmm. a couple things came unraveled. But again, uh, they did one season with Alabama and their their facilities were elite and yeah. just strictly football. But everything has a meeting too. like um, they showed the new golf or like the tee off area. Mm -hmm. There's a meaning to that. And, and Thad talks about it when he's at Clemson that a lot of business is done on the golf course. So you want your players, you know, you want them to go to the NFL, but that's just not the case for everybody. That's just not going to happen. So they're going to prepare them, you know, to get out into the world and, and engage in a, in a high performance. And one of those things is just kind of teaching them to play golf. Yeah. Oh man. That's so interesting. 
Let's talk about and you you alluded to these guys earlier. So Oklahoma at the beginning of July had nine commitments total. And mm-hmm. you had a lot of people talking stuff, and we'll talk about that later. Um ended July, or I guess punctuated it August 1st, even though everything was coming out in the last day of July about Colton Bassett committing to the University of Oklahoma. Oklahoma began July with nine commits and puts a period on it or exclamation point, if you will, August 1st with Mm. 19 total commits. It was a very, very, very fun month for recruiting. So let's talk about these guys. Let's talk about two of them because these are the most recent guys within the last four or five days. Uh, Colton Bassett, Texas, He's from Austin Westlake, which is typically a Texas Longhorn stronghold. That's where right. you're getting your Sam Ellingers from. Uh, Baker Mayfield, if you guys remember, is Lake Travis. And so they would always talk all kinds of trash. I think wasn't Colt McCoy. Wasn't Colt McCoy also Austin Westlake? Or am I losing my mind? Uh, let's check real quick. But Austin Westlake has been a... Texas Longhorn stronghold. Colton Vasek himself is a Longhorn legacy to his father who played for the University of Texas and is a four-star edge, which I believe for the first time in like forever because people didn't know how to categorize these types of football players. (laughs) You're seeing accurate analytics. Uh, uh, analysis on edge edge players because before they were just tweeners. Oh, they're not big enough to be on the defensive line. Ah, they're not, they don't really, they don't really do. They're not really that skilled as a linebacker. And now you're seeing accurate analysis of edges. I'm curious when it's going to spread to other kind of like new positions as well. But anyways, Steven, tell me more about Colton Vasek. I know he's big. He's got long arms. What else? He's a violent, violent hitter. Um, I mean, you look at a guy that's extremely talented, but um, you know, doesn't lack in size at all. Six five, six six, um, somewhere around two thirty at the moment. Um, a guy that has a lot of explosive edge. He can use his hands very well, um, and just very violent at the point of contact. And he's a guy that, you know, Oklahoma has had some some nice pieces on the defensive line in the past, especially like Ronnie Perkins comes mm-hmm. to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would put Colton Vask, you know, talent wise and size wise above Ronnie Perkins. He's just gonna be that good um, once he fills out. And, you know, yeah, he's they, got a high motor. That thing runs high. Oh my god! Yeah, think about Ethan Downs, but a six six essentially. So um, he's a guy that, you know, if you just had him in your class alone, he would be, you know, probably your most exciting prospect. Yeah, and it doesn't and, seem like he's gonna be the only one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's. There, there, guys. Everybody listening. There's so much on the horizon, and I think I think a lot of people that follow Sooners recruiting can attest to that. Or maybe guys that you know, or just follow. You know, like if you have subscriptions somewhere, I'm sure you can attest to that too. That Oklahoma is not done, uh, especially with these types of prospects, because early on it was three star prospects, and a lot of them, which we all thought might be those cheetah guys for Brent Venables, which again is a position that you can't really provide a great analysis is like, Oh, well they're kind of this big, but they're this fast. And I don't know where they translate, but translates really well to Brent Venables defense is what it does. So it's really hard to, to kind of like 
I guess, judge those guys based upon certain attributes. And so it's just really interesting with the amount of quality they're also getting on defense and how, although under you go for Mike Stoops, guy gets tossed after a Texas game to Ruffin McNeil, (laughs) you get (laughs) who was asleep in the box probably. And then you get Alex Grinch and defense becomes better. Although I have a really big issue with the whole Juco route on the defensive line because they could not close. So now that's created an issue of depth on the defensive line of quality depth. It's not just about depth. It's quality depth that really matters. in you know, if you want to be of the elite of the elite of college football to now, gosh, this is just the beginning for Oklahoma defense. And so going on to the next guy in Derek LeBlanc, who's from mm-hmm. Florida, four-star defensive lineman, again, big, long, from what I understand and from what I've read and kind of like scouting, he would more likely fit pretty well as a defensive end in a traditional 4-3 technique. Is that wrong? What do you think about LeBlanc? I think he'll, he'll shift around. I don't think he's going to just stay on the edge. I think he'll move inside. And you kind of look at what Clemson did, uh, did with um, Christian Wilkins, essentially. Um, guy that's 6'4", plays about 280, something like that. Um, he didn't always play on the outside. He played a little bit inside as well. Um, so he's a guy that has a lot of versatility. They can disguise some rushes, some some pressures there. Um, a violent. Another guy, like the common theme with these guys that, that are in this defensive class is they're all just very violent hitters. You didn't really see that in previous classes. You had some guys, you know, were really fast off the edge, really big. Um, but across the board, they just didn't have that that violent technique. They don't, I mean, it's something that just wasn't in the Lincoln Riley era. So um, again, a guy that can play outside, inside um, can do a lot of things with it. It's going to be very exciting to see how they use them. Yeah. And again, Venables, as we all know, is extremely multiple. You'll see a lot of different personnel on the field, especially given the opportunity to, get different personnel on the field if the other offense isn't going no huddle constantly. And so LeBlanc, I think, is a big ad. I mean, like, heck, there, like, there's more to come on the way. So Oklahoma ha- held this massive recruiting weekend this past weekend. And you've got names like Makari Vickers, Peyton Bowen, Jacoby Johnson, DJ Hicks, all have been thrown around. If I were to say, hey, how many of these guys do you think are realistic for you? And which one or two, let's give you two, would you say are the biggest game changers for this team as it currently stands as if they were coming into a OE freshman class next year? I think almost all of them are realistic. There's... Uh... I know there's a lot of assumptions out there as far as who committed, who didn't commit. Um, I don't think anyone flipped essentially. So that might narrow down um, kind of who those two outliers are, but. And I think, Oh, uh, I think, and I forgot uh, maybe Ryan Yates as well. Ryan Yates. Yes. He was there as well. Um, I think, you know, as far as impact, <laughs> David Hicks is going to be the guy um, just an outstanding defensive lineman, great size. Um, great with his hands, great footwork. 
um, extremely athletic. Um, again, a guy that kind of fits in the same mold as Christian Wilkins, where you can has enough speed to play the edge, has enough power to play inside. A, lot, a guy that can just move around if you just like a matchup. So um, he's a guy that probably you know down the road three years from now is going to be in the first round of the NFL draft. So he gave um, me some serious. I'm and I'm not saying play style vibes as for like Tommy Harris mm-hmm. and Gerald McCoy. But he's giving me some serious, like game-changing vibes, like those guys had. Oh, absolutely! He's an impact player. He's the guy that Oklahoma fans, you know, when you get into these playoff games, they don't have those type of athletes yeah. available. That's where they come up short is they don't have the big impact players on the defensive line. David Hicks is absolutely that guy. He's a day one starter, right? Oh yeah, he's not going to be uh, on the sideline on day one. And so, man. It's so interesting, Oklahoma going after the Denton Geyer guys. You already have Jackson Arnold, and you have Peyton Bowen, who's committed to Notre Dame currently. You got Ryan Yates committed to LSU currently. But both, you know, you could say, like, Oklahoma feel, their staff feel pretty good about getting at least one of those guys. Yeah. And Jackson and, Arnold has to be pretty happy about where oh, they stand yeah. with, but, you know. Colton Vasek and uh, David Hicks, as you, if you watch his uh, both their highlights, he, they're just all over uh, Jackson Arnold in some of those highlights. I think I I I put in a I I can't remember what I read. Um, I think it was Colton Vasek that planted Jackson Arnold three times in the state championship last last year. Yeah, uh, which anyone like defensive MVP on their road to a undefeated season. But man, there there is so much. I, I like I like the so you went DJ Hicks. I think of course Macari Vickers is a, a name that you want, obviously, and you need uh Peyton Bowen. But a guy that I find super intriguing is Jacoby Johnson. I mean, mm-hmm. he's been a guy that we've all said he could commit any day now for like the past month, right? And he's straight, you know, he's from Mustang, he's an okay preps guy. He's six foot three, I think of around 180 something, um, 180 and change probably. And I have a tough time figuring out where they could play him. Of course, I've, I've seen him with several pictures with Jeff Levy. And, but at the same time, with that size and with that kind of defensive IQ, because he has early experience as a pass catcher, but is primarily used as a defender for Mustang it's going to be really tough for me anyways to suggest where he should really slot in right now. Like, what do you think? Where do you think he would end up? I kind of tend to think he'll be a safety just because he's so athletic. Um, but also a guy that, you know, his frame, he could add enough to still have that athleticism, but um, could also be like a run run stopper as well. So I tend to think he'll slot back into the safety, but we'll see kind of where he develops. Yeah. He's and he's big and, his wide receiver highlights are are pretty interesting when you consider a lot of the balls were underthrown so he had to make some he had to moss a lot of people and so he has some he has some he has some real ball skills and that could really pay off as a defensive back just having that early early pass catching stuff playing receiver younger when he um as he grew through the ranks of high school into his senior year um, so are there any other names though, that sooner fans should be aware of other than the ones we just talked about briefly? 
Uh, Jordan Renaud would come to mind, another defensive lineman. Um, I can't remember where he's from, by the way, but uh, definitely a guy that's going to fit inside, um, kind of be that kind of anchor for the defensive line. Uh, I think he's out Tyler, actually, East Texas. So yeah, he's, I think he's a Texas guy. Isn't he like top 100 player nationally as well? He, let's see. 86. So just slotted inside the uh, the 100 on the composite rankings. Another guy that's extremely talented. That's going to be an, an OU uh, Alabama head to head battle. So if they win that, that's a very, very impressive showing um, for Brent Venables just going head to head with Bama. You know, that, that, and honestly, that has been one of the more satisfying things from this entire month, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, when you're seeing Oklahoma, I mean, first of all, you're seeing Oklahoma rip off just a string of really great recruits. We're talking high caliber athletes. And, but even better to look at the offer sheet and find out they were offered by the Ohio States, they were offered by the Alabamas, they were offered you know, by the Georgias, et cetera. Um, and of course, it's always nice to know that they were offered by USC because I'm petty. Um, <laughs> and so like, it's it, it's so interesting in that Oklahoma, they've already won like an Alabama battle, right? And they've already won some pretty big recruiting battles, I would say, with right. other schools that are highly touted in the blue blood, just like Oklahoma is. Caden Green would be one of those. Oh yeah, my goodness. <laughs> Maybe one that's not really talked about as much is, is Anthony Evans, a wide receiver um, mm-hmm. out of Texas. Uh, that's an OU Georgia, OU Texas A&M battle that, um, you know, he's a low end four star, but a very, very talented. A guy that I think shows a lot of uh, similarities like uh, McCole Hardman a little bit from Georgia. So um, that's a battle we talk about on the defensive and on the offensive side, they're winning some big battles as well. So, with all that said, right, what do you say to the folks that in June, and I'm talking like national analysts and personalities being like, well, cover your ears, Oklahoma fans, because the next few moments could be pretty bad, <laughs> that they suggested Oklahoma would be the next blue blood to Nebraska themselves. And that's and that's kind of the quote they're using. They they turned Nebraska into a verb that they would just go from competing nationally to complete crap in a matter of like three seasons or wherever. Uh, what would you say to those folks now where in August and not that far away from football. I think we'll use a, uh, a word that our good friend Keegan Renault um, loves to, to be described as is ignorant. Um, I, I just don't understand where they thought uh, Oklahoma was going anywhere. I mean, I guess, you know, first year Brent Venables, you're not sure what that's going to look like, but at the same time, Oklahoma is a national brand. It's not, it's not going to go anywhere. Nebraska, you know, you could say it might be a national brand, but it's very local. Um, and they just had a lot of luck with a lot of really good coaches. But Oklahoma, it's well-known in Texas. It's well-known, you know, coast to coast as far as just being a recruiting juggernaut. And you can see it just kind of copying over with Brent Venables. Yeah. And, again, this this team is showing a lot of success. And I already off off the recruiting trail. I mean, it, it's just it's just incredible to see 
this regime change and people said, man, this is going to be a transition class. Expect somewhere between, like I said, you know, expect yeah. somewhere between, you know, 12 to 18, 20 Oklahoma will drop out of the top 20. I mean, I'll admit, I even said that for a little yeah. while. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would agree with you. Like, new coaching staff, you haven't seen the product on the field. Like, what's going on? And I guess selling that vision, but also, you know, what players can do for them is in the family atmosphere and getting everybody involved in the recruitment, not just recruiting the player, but that family to everybody matters a lot. And so kind of shifting gears here, realignment. There's talk of Washington and Oregon going to the Big Ten possibly, and the Pac-12 commissioner has come out and being like, "Hey, you know, because they they they, just, they disagreed on a Big 12 merger, and like, hey, the Big 12 is not poaching any Pac-12 teams, but I'm it's pretty clear that the writing is on the wall, right? That the Big 12 is going to go after." Some of these Pac-12 teams, notably probably the Arizona schools, Colorado and Utah, just to pair them with BYU. Does that sound fair? Yeah, it would make sense regionally. That way you have some some not-so-distant travels. Man, it's just like... West Virginia has to be pissed, though. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> when West Virginia goes to either BYU or Utah if you know BYU is a definite but when West Virginia goes to Utah how many times don't they crossing that two be two yeah. right yeah that'd be that'd be miserable gosh I guess it could be the other way around though like you're flying clear across the country yeah so if Utah went to West Virginia that would, and it's like an 11 a.m kickoff Ugh. good lord you leave Wednesday, not Thursday, <laughs> but it's just so interesting. I mean, would, would that solidify adding those four teams or even two of those four teams? Would that solidify the big 12 as the third best conference after all this realignment is done? Uh, I'm not sure. Cause you'd have to think that the ACC is going to do something with ESPN being a, a large part of that. So I don't think they would just let the ACC kind of fall back if they can, you know, add a team or two. Uh, but in the short term, I think, yeah, Big 12 would be the third best conference, at least strength-wise, um, to compete in the new college football era. At the very least, I think it would be a really fun conference to watch because you know none of those teams are going to win a national title. No, but they can play some good football. Yeah. And they can they can ruin someone's season. Oh, yeah. I, I just think, man, it would be a really fun conference to watch just because, like, you know, the, it's like, and it feels bad, and I, I feel a little bit bad for saying this, but I actually don't care at all. You have the two Super Leagues between the Big Ten and the SEC, and then you don't have, like, the American Conference, where you have, you've had some really good teams. You had Louisville, uh, with Lamar Jackson, you had Cincinnati, you know, some UCF. really good, it's really, really good teams, but this is like a, it's the, it's the second tier of what college football conferences, I guess would be like, it's like guys that could, you know, every once in a while have a really good team, uh, teams that could really ruin your season, um, teams with pretty good branding, BYU, right? Heck, Oh my god! In that next iteration of the Big Twelve, would you say that BYU has the best brand? 
Um, or, am I, or am I just thinking? Are you talking about like nationally? Yeah. I would go. Yeah. BYU. I think um, you have to watch out for UCF because that's, that's a large right. fan base. But, They're growing. Um, oh my gosh. Their market is growing huge. Yeah. At least immediately BYU is probably your strongest brand. Like Gus Malzahn is having four star guys stay in at UCF. <laughs> that's wild. I want how, how much but money is how, going on. How much of a dumbass is, is uh, Bob Bullsby for? Uh, letting go of OU in Texas while also being able to add, you know, two more very large brands and a conference that would have been very competitive with the SEC and the Big Ten if they had held on to OU in Texas. Those sons of bitches. I'm not saying that I wanted OU to stay. I'm just saying, you know, from the other perspective, it's like, man, what what could have been like for the, the Big 12? The, those sons of bitches, they – they teased they even teased conference realignment they wouldn't even they even went out of their way to hire a search firm <laughs> to they spent like fifty thousand dollars yeah they spent it. money just like figuring out you know schools it, it's it's like NCAA football 14 right before the new one comes out next summer like what's what what's their academic level rating what's this what's this what's this they're, they're searching all over their and like you know, I remember the words. I know I remember teams like Memphis were throwing were throwing around Memphis, Houston, Cincinnati. UCF, BYU. Sundays might be an issue for them because of their whole uh, stuff going on and their oaths. And of course, there's a religious institution, and so like there's a lot of like stuff going on in Cincinnati. And I remember somebody even photoshopped Cincinnati logo with the Big Twelve backdrop, and people were like, "Oh my God, it's happening." <laughs> And then nothing happened. I, I, I so much. And like they, that, that was after, that was after they passed on Louisville and who else? Wasn't it Cincinnati? Was it also Cincinnati again? I think so. And BYU. Uh, David Bourne went to bat for Cincinnati for like a million times um, while he was there. But in, and then the next year, Louisville wins a, a national title in basketball when they could have been in the Big 12. And their football teams have Lamar Jackson, <laughs> and then people are like, "Why? Yeah. Why would this? Be, why do people want to leave the Big 12? Of it course, is interesting. Texas, looking Texas back, drove a couple teams away. You know, at that moment where they said, "You know, no thanks to realignment," and then a couple years later, when um, you know the early negotiations were supposed to start, or at least the Big 12 kind of tried to start that conversation, everyone was like, "No, we're we're good. Let's not talk about it." And then, you know, a year later, they're like, uh, oh, you and Texas are leaving. And they're like, how how could we have seen this happen? <laughs> Came out of nowhere. It is that Eric Andre meme <laughs> <laughs> where he shoots somebody. And then the next the next frame is, why would you do that? <laughs> I mean, it's it's just like it's so it's so ridiculous. Anyways, to, co- to continue on with a little bit conference realignment, oh, you and Texas of course, their granted rights aren't up till after the 2024 season, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. And so, do you expect them to jump after this coming season, or do you think they might prolong that? Do you think? And let's just let's just stay there for right now. Do you think Oklahoma and Texas jump next season for the 23-24 season, or do you think they wait a little bit longer? We'll start there. I know a lot of people think they're going to wait till 2025 and the the reasoning for that is just the price tag at the moment. Yeah. Um, 
you know, whereas like a price tag for UCF is much lower. Um, but I can still see it happening. I don't, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Um, I wouldn't bet on it at the moment, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things for me is that I could see them even waiting. I could see Oklahoma, especially even waiting. Do you, do you think it would even be beneficial for Oklahoma to wait that extra year in the big 12 with the rest of the big 12 forming and still recruiting, knowing that they're going to go play in the sec to kind of retool a little bit more to Venables before they actually exit to the sec. Or do you think, what the inevitable is going to happen and go ahead and make a splash. The way they're recruiting, I think they could just jump over um, in a couple of seasons, but you know, if they wait till 2025, does it help them? Sure. I guess you can stack some bodies. You can, you can build some more, some more depth, but uh, you know, if they, if they move next season, I don't think the drop off is that substantial. Mm. In fact, it might be better in some ways, especially I think up, uh, along the offensive line. Yep. yep. And that's, and, and Dylan Gabriel, Dylan Gabriel still has like three years of eligibility left. People for, for some reason for forgetting that. Yeah. He's got that extra COVID year. The, he had, because he broke his collarbone because he was, he was a red shirt sophomore. He broke his collarbone. And so like right now he's a red shirt junior. He broke his collarbone. He has a COVID year. He technically still has like three years left to play. It's wild. <laughs> Uh, and I don't expect him to go to the NFL draft after this year, unless he just has a monster year. Davis Bevel or Jackson Arnold, you're up, homie. Um, but I could see the benefit, be- how Oklahoma would be a beneficiary of staying in the Big 12 for a little bit. Uh, did not be just past the season, um, but not till 2025 exclusively, just because of the way they're recruiting. I could see that. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, especially with the way that the SEC is going to go recruit, especially with the SEC, not recruit, especially the way the SEC is going to go into going about scheduling, especially when we hear con- uh, kind of these little tidbits that slip out. Because Sam Pittman alluded to this the other day about Oklahoma of that three of those three teams you play and then however many other teams in that conference, in the sec that Oklahoma would be in that group where they would play Texas, Arkansas and Missouri. Those would be the three teams they would play. Uh, Sankey kind of alluded to it. So did Sam Pittman. And I think Oklahoma would do pretty well. I mean, in, in that aspect with just the culture going on. Yeah. Not the toughest, uh, but it's also manageable road games. What blows me away is this. Oklahoma is having more success in Missouri than they are. And I'm talking, just talking recruiting. Oklahoma has, is having more success in the state of Missouri, specifically Kansas City, than they do in certain parts of Tulsa. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of a, a weird mix. The thing is, Arkansas seems to be the the biggest player in Tulsa. Yep. Missouri, you know, you could argue that money-wise, sure, they they benefited from the SEC, but they have not been good outside that first year. And uh, 
I think there's like a rumor that floated out there. I'm not sure who published it, but Missouri was looking at maybe joining the Big Ten. Um, yeah. Check the SEC. So, um, you know, brand wise, they took a hit. Money wise, obviously, they're getting the SEC money, so it's good for them. Um, whereas Tol- or, um, Arkansas, close to Tulsa, um, you know, is on the up and up, and they're, they're just kind of recruiting that area a little bit better than Oklahoma. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting. And so, like, expanding these recruiting pipelines, especially with these super conferences, is, is going to happen. Oklahoma has like four four Florida guys on the roster already, maybe f- five soon. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot of dudes from Florida. And of course, they typically have been pulling guys out of California, but it seems like Florida. Uh, Virginia, that's that that South area, deep South, like deep, deep South area is like where they're kind of really focusing now. And that's another reason why Ted Roof comes on staff, because he is a coach that knows those areas pretty well. And so with the expanding to super conferences in in the in the eventual game. You have to extend, extend, expand the playoff, right? Like you can't do fourteen. Yeah, it's just not not feasible. And I think money wise, it would make sense too. How many teams would you go to? Uh, I thought you know eight would probably be where I would like it. I don't think I would go to the twelve team playoff. And I think six, you know, have the uh, like a first first round buy. Essentially, I think that's a little bit too gimmicky. So I think I would sit at eight on the playoff. And yeah, I. I flirt between eight and 12, right? And, or heck, how many, how many, how many, how many rounds do they have in FCS? How many teams do they have there? Too many. To it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. lot, isn't it? I need to go see. I think, is it 16? I could be wrong. I think there. it's, I want to say it's 16, but I could be so wrong. I just know the Bison win every year. They just, yeah, they, it's unbelievable how they can do that at that level for that long. How many teams is it? Uh, I think it's just, it might be 16. One, two, three, four. Yeah, 16. Now, do you think that's, do, do you think it's too much? I would say it's too much because I think some people will just have some fatigue at that point, at least yeah. viewers wise. I think a lot of teams would like it. You get more football, like yeah. some fan bases that make it real deep in the playoffs. They love it. But from a viewership standpoint, you know, nationally, you probably gonna have a little bit of fatigue there in the middle. I would imagine there are a couple things that come into play there. Is that some people would say, well, there's more risk for injury. And I would say, well, they're going to be playing a 17-game schedule if they're drafted in the NFL. And that's if you don't make the playoffs. And so because there are so many players, first-year, especially first-year players, that, man, once they get past week 10, they are gassed and dead because they're not used to that speed, physicality. And then you have another half of the season, especially if your team is good enough to make playoffs. And it really, really, really hampers rookies. And so I could say that on the flip side of the coin, and I could say also you're going to have less high-quality players 
dipping out and going to the draft instead because they have a chance to bring a ring home if they really believe in that stuff. And so I think there's I think there's a case for that. I think there's a case for a lot of money to be made. Like just play at home, and then once you get to the final four, then go to actual bowl games, right? You know the actual arenas, wherever you want to. Uh, just in generating revenue and just more eyes on the sport. But, you know, what do I know? Like Mike Leach talks about it all the time. He talks about how, you know, college football gets four and there's 80. So however many teams, whatever, what, 16 times four plus the extra play in games for basketball. And then football gets you know four by just people with maybe agendas. Right. Yeah. Because you can you can envision a, a, a top twelve or even a top eight with three teams from a conference, maybe three teams from two different conferences, right? You could do a top eight, yeah, and you could even expand it out and do like a conference playoff, yeah, maybe for a conference championship, and then you know you judge it from there. But there's a way to get more games without making it uh, too difficult on the fan base. Yeah, I agree, and so. Let's talk, let's talk about this team. Let's talk about this team. It is mm-hmm. August now, and um, that means you're gonna we're transitioning to to fall. Classes begin. Classes resume in about two weeks, and it's very real for everybody right now. Uh, or classes resume, I think, in in, in yeah, but about two and a half weeks, and so there's been a lot of talk, and Dylan Gabriel has even mentioned it. Brent Venables has mentioned it. A lot of the players have mentioned it in their Twitter spaces and yada yada. There's a and there's a lot of team buy-in. There's a lot of a culture shift that's taken place. I mean, the guys that you would want to buy in most have and are the ones echoing and becoming leaders. And even guy younger guys like Ethan Downs being a direct match with Miguel Chavis, they say. Of course, we'll see what production Ethan Downs has in the fall. But there's a lot of team buy-in, and the team just with Schmitty, I mean, I mean, we've made it this far, and knock on wood, right? You haven't had an off-season issue that was like an actual misdemeanor where somebody's getting pistol whipped or other things, or you know, like uh, Hollywood. Yeah, there's there. You're not having off-season issues. You didn't hear anything, and no news is good news in the summer. And so with Schmitty with that and the amount of discipline uh, on the field, off the field, accountability, what would you suggest about this team going into the fall? Because, man, they have people don't realize Kent State finished, I think, first in the East Division in the MAC. Of course, they went like seven and seven, which is like an outrageous number that they played 14 games last year. Right. Uh, But Kent State. And then Nebraska, and then you have T- some some sort of TCU, Kansas State, and then in Texas, and only Kent State and I believe Kansas State are at home. That is a tough stretch. And so tell me about what this means for team buy-in and why that matters, or if it doesn't matter at all, what do you, what do you think about that? And what do you think about that stretch of games and what it might suggest about this team? Well, I think the buy-in aspect of it, it just kind of proves that, you know, 
to the credit of the previous regime, they recruited the right guys for the most part. There's a lot of turnover, a lot of new faces, but um, they recruited guys that that want to play football, that want to be pushed, that want to, you know, to prove themselves and, and try to get into the NFL, something like that. But uh, I think you know we talked about it a couple of months ago. Is you know Schmidty's going to run someone off? Like it's going to happen. You know, two three names will probably bounce to the portal um, in July, and that just hasn't happened. Um, and that's kind of a credit to team leadership. It's a credit to you know the individual as well, but. Um, they're putting something together that, you know, could be, you know, better than some of its pieces, essentially. Um, you know, this could be a team that we talked about, you know, could push for a conference championship. But, you know, if the buy-in is real and, you know, the talent is there, that this is a team that could sneak into the playoffs as well. Um, and that that early stretch of games, that will prove a lot about, you know, how do we measure this team? Are they that good? Are they you know, a team that has a lot to learn, um, you know, are they going to make mistakes? So it's one of the more underrated schedules going into the season, but um, it will, it should prove a lot to where this team could take themselves. I think it's going to say a lot about them physically, the over, especially over that Nebraska. I, I think, what is it? Nebraska. Let me pull up schedule. This is great podcasting, by the <laughs> way, to everybody listening. We also talked about like the offensive line. You talk about like physicality. Oh um, yeah. Andrew Rame talked about it at media day. It's just, you know, how much stronger this this offensive line has gotten in this short, you know, five, six months than they've gotten in two years on campus. I'm I'm so shocked that they are that. actually stronger. They're stronger now. P ninety X isn't a uh strength program. Man. So Oklahoma goes to, to Lincoln, Nebraska. They come home and play Kansas State, which is a dark horse Big 12 candidate. They have a pretty decent team up there. Kansas State with climate up there. Oklahoma then goes to TCU and Fort Worth. Although they have a new coaching staff and regime, I think they have good players. And they're, they could give OU fits. And then OU goes to Dallas as the home team so they can host recruits. And then Oklahoma gets a break in Kansas. Then they go on the road to Iowa State, so not a big deal because they lost pretty much everybody. Then Oklahoma <laughs> hosts Baylor, which would be a tough one, but they also host Bedlam as well. And then Texas Tech has their senior night with Oklahoma at the very end. I left out being away at Morgantown at West Virginia as well. That could be an um, interesting game. But I think that stretch at the very beginning of the season, putting this team through the ringer, putting them th- in real live si- game situations that matter. You're not seeing teams on, o- on Oklahoma schedule right now that are cupcake teams. Like even Kent State, I think, might give them a couple of issues for real yeah. just because they're learning. They're still learning the defense. The offense is very easy to learn. But with the defense, I still think there are going to be some learning issues. Learn not learning issues, but just like you know, the, the getting the timing right, getting angles right, etc. That because this defense is very complex in comparison to what you saw in Alex Grinch, and so I still think you'll see chinks in the armor as you go, but also corrections as you go, and the defense will get better because all those teams, despite Nebraska being three and nine last year, they lost like what seven of those games by less than seven points right. or fewer than seven points, whatever you want to say there. 
And then Kansas State has been a team that keeps on upping the ante. TCU has always been a tough out for OU, especially in Fort Worth. And then, of course, you have Texas. So that's a schedule that's going to tell you a lot about Oklahoma by that. So let's so let's say that those are the first six games. Of course, you have who who at the beginning, who, UTEP. The first six games, which are UTEP and Norman, Kent State and Norman, OU versus Nebraska and Lincoln, uh, Kansas State and Norman, OU in Fort Worth versus TCU, and then Oklahoma at uh, in Dallas versus Texas. I think I have to believe that's the first six if I can count right. Yes. <laughs> what would you put that record at? Just standing right now, of course, like I'm not going to like say, oh, Steven said it would be this, but what would you say? I would go, um, I think five and one is appropriate for that. I've five and a, one, four and you could say I've four seen a and lot two. of four and twos. I've seen a lot of four and twos. Because you look at like a team like Texas, we have no idea what Texas is going to look like, but talent-wise, obviously a very good program. Uh, the one where I kind of have trouble seeing OU win would be Kansas State and Norman. Uh, Kansas State's front seven is insanely talented. There'll be a lot of NFL guys on that, that front seven. Uh, their offense can be very punishing, so I think that's going to be more of a defensive bout. Um, so we'll kind of see where Oklahoma stands after that. And see, that's my thing. I can see five and one. I could also see, I could see, I, I don't see what's more likely four and two or six and oh. Probably four and two. If you're just looking at a year one team, that's exactly where I'm at. Right. I don't think they go six and oh. Uh, I think that that's too many teams that are going to be hitting you really hard. Too many good teams, especially you have one team with a lot of talent you have one team that gives you typically fits in Fort Worth. You have one team that is really, really well coached, despite it being in Norman, which is going to help Oklahoma. Um, they're really, really well, well coached, and your offense is designed to get it out into space. So that front seven for Kansas State, get it out in space and get it out quick. So I think that will mitigate some of KK State's front seven a little bit. Um, in Nebraska, which just wants to be physical because that's what the Big Ten is. It's three yards and a cloud of dust. And so I'm really <laughs> curious to see what that looks like. Um, so I would I would lean towards five and one, but it wouldn't shock me for them to be four and two. Of course, anybody would be happy with six and zero. Oh. And so I'm. What's I'm going to preface this. So we're we're about to go to the last part of this podcast. We're going to go to bold predictions. But. Occasionally, I tap into Twitter Spaces. Do you ever talk? Do you ever ta- tap into Twitter Spaces, Stephen? I did one with Keegan, but I haven't I was, really. I don't always listen to him. I should. So I, I I tap into them occasionally, just depending upon who starts them, who's on, and yada yada. And a lot of the takes I hear on there sometimes, most of the times, are this might be the Homer in me, but. And ellipses like but they then they start to say something i think it, if you have to preface your remark by saying this might be the homer in me yes it is the homer in you so the, i just i just thought it was so interesting like come on but anyways one bold prediction i would i told you that i, I was struggling with this before the podcast and and then i finally just decided on one and I wanted to get your live reaction. 
Okay. Oh, so I'll, 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 go, I'll go first, and then we can talk through it. Oklahoma has two 1,000-yard receivers and a 1,000-yard running back. That would be that would be something. Who are your receivers that, that are? Because I know your running back would probably be, but Mims is got to be one of them, right? Okay, right. And man, for some reason, I cannot get off the idea that LV Bunkley Shelton will not have a really good year in this offense as well. I think I, he. Gets, I could see that because he just fits the mold of like that impact. Oh yeah, receiver that that Levy's had in, in other systems. And he, he he did not. He just did not. It's not like he didn't. It's not like he transferred from Arizona State because he just wasn't getting playing time. I mean, that's part of the issue. He, his his numbers are misleading at Arizona State. He was always the number two wide receiver, just being a true freshman. But he didn't get that many opportunities to catch the ball because Arizona State, they just run the ball, run a lot of swing passes. So he's not really getting the opportunity to, despite what he brings to the game, which to me can have a similar impact as Marvin Mims. Now, can he make some circus catches like Marvin Mims? I don't know. But the guy fits the mold in which is a guy that can operate in space really, really well. Uh, As far as running back, I mean... If you got if you have guys out in space, I think it's going to be pretty easy, especially if this offensive line is stronger and has a little bit more uh, tenacity to them, and also gel a little bit better. I think any running back behind the offensive line is going to be a thousand yard rusher. Yeah, I think uh, if you, I mean, if you're adding size inside, uh, my my problem is the tackles on that situation. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least, you know, inside they're going to run 40 times a game. You're going to have a thousand yard rusher. That's against though. That's probably why they brought in Daniel Parker. Just put him <laughs> on the edge. Yeah. But I, I, I like where you're going with the receiver because I think a lot of people look at this and they think, you know, Theo Weiss, Jaden Gibson, you know, Jeff Levy's offense is all about size on the outside and, and pushing it to the outside. When yep. you look at, you know, the top performers in his offense, it's Gabriel Davis, you know, six, one ish, um, Elijah Moore, another six foot, you know, maybe five eleven mm-hmm. wide receiver, Dontario Drummond, um, all those guys, you know, size wise and skill wise fit what LV Bunkley Shelton, um, kind of fits into this offense this season. So I could, uh, I could get behind that. And, and, and what's so important in this offense is, not just having your ones on the field, because if you, we remember, this is going to be basically the 2013 Baylor Bears offense um, mixed in with a little bit of Hypel, with a little bit of Kiffin, and that's it, right? Um, but for the most part, it's going to be what Oklahoma saw, what we all saw when Baylor and TCU were duking it out for the conference championship. And... A lot of times what would catch teams off guard is that the wide receivers would run their routes and they would go so up tempo. And then as soon as they would run the routes, they just would walk right off the sideline and have a fresh body come right back into the game. And that gassed a lot of players. And so that second lineup is going to be so important because they're going to be subbing in and out a lot with the ones and the twos, I feel like. And 
depth is going to be so important uh, regarding these receivers. Yeah, fresh bodies is definitely an aspect of it. Um, I think another thing is you, you look at the offensive line again and how they've gotten stronger um, towards the end of the last season. You saw the offensive line, you know, they struggled all season, but especially late in games, you know, you could tell that there's it just wasn't that much push. Um, so yeah. you get in these tempo situations, maybe you sub a guy out on, you know, on the twos and inside a guard, but um, for the most part, you can run that offense effectively with those starting five. Yeah, I agree. 100%. What's your, what's your bold take? I already gave it away with you before the podcast started. I think, uh, I think uh, Dylan Gabriel gets an invite to New York. I think he'll be uh, very outstanding this season. Um, and you're talking about a team that, you know, if they go six and zero, it would be because Dylan Gabriel has pushed them there. Um, you know, a lot of these teams early in the season, you look at their front seven, um, where they stack up against OU's offensive line. Um, you know, early in that schedule, there's not a lot of, uh, I guess, playmaking secondaries. Like that's not the strength of these programs mm-hmm. going in. So, I think Dylan Gabriel numbers wise will put up a lot of you know a lot of stats, and I think that will get him to New York. I thought that the, the the quarterback guru just left Oklahoma and that Oklahoma would never have a good quarterback again. That's what I was told. Well, that, that did happen, and that's just fact. I, I read it nationally. So um, the program is actually over. Um, Jeff Levy, there's nothing to do with him. You know, Matt Corral's not in the NFL. So what, what round did Corral go? I think he went second or third. Let's yeah. check. But uh, I guess he's pushing for snaps um, over USC great, uh, what's his Sam Darnold. So, oh, God. Yeah, because you have Bake, Darnold, and Corral all over in Carolina. Right. Which... I think Baker's got that starting job on lock. But um, yeah, I kind of read into it today just to see what was going on. And it seems like Matt Corral is actually pushing for the second team reps. Yeah. Um, so that tells you anything about USC quarterbacks. I, th- I just think it's I think I just think it's so interesting that Matt Corral gets drafted in the top three, and if he would have remained healthy, um, he probably could have pushed for a first round bid, maybe. And people are like not even talking about Jeff Levy and like the kind of quarterbacks he might be putting in the NFL because like you can't, right? Corral's like his first guy, and so it's unfair right. to say well, that's well, the same. Is he Lincoln Riley with Shane Carden? If you remember that, that uh, was a 2015 season. Is that when he came in? Mm-hmm. So we had Shane Carden go to the NFL. Um, ECU had that great offense, great quarterback play. Yeah. But the big question was, you know, how does that translate to a larger level and a larger role? And at Oklahoma, it just seemed to work out. So just, it's just interesting. It's it seems like Joe Casiglio knows how to identify good offensive coaches and just good coaches in general but that's all i got you got anything else uh i'm podcasting from a new little area so if the sound is a little weird we'll get it fixed in the the coming weeks before the season you sound you sound beautifully to me (laughs) like the voice i used to i used to be podcasting from my bed that's how uh intricate this podcast is sounds like the voice of an angel that maybe i don't know i guess august i guess august is here but i don't think recruiting is going to slow down 
Um, you have a couple decisions coming up. We'll see kind of where those lie, but I think Oklahoma is just going to keep the train rolling. Yeah, it's going to be join Discord. One. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's the thing we haven't pushed out. I'll I'll, I'll even post the link on Twitter. I won't, even, I'll, I won't even just post it on the podcast description. So, um, yeah, follow us on CrimsonandCreamMachine.com. Uh, join the Discord. It's always fun to join the Discord. There are podcasts, you know. Again, there are several several channels on that Discord that fit a lot of random ones, things, and random things. Um you can follow us on twitter at cc machine you can follow steven at OUfitted sb you can follow me at, at kamarabian ccm again guys thank you for listening to the podcast thank you for continuing to support crimson and cream machine and have a great night check you later